welcome to the fifth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode, I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. And be sure to sign up for the new monthly e-newsletter. You'll get more info about the episodes and guests, and more ways to engage with musical theater past and present. Sign up now at scenetosong.substack.com to make sure it's in your inbox. My guest today is Masi Asari. Masi is a composer-lyricist, playwright, voice teacher, and performance scholar. She is Assistant Professor of Theater and Performance Studies at Northwestern University. She co-wrote the lyrics for the new musical Paradise Square, which is scheduled to open on Broadway this spring. We're going to talk today about Black women in musical theater history. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Hello, it's my pleasure to be here. Well, we are going to get started with our get to know our guest questions. So what was your first experience with the musical? Yeah, I was thinking about this. I think, you know, I, I sometimes forget this example, but I will give it, especially because it's the holiday season right now. And so when I was growing up, I do remember I came from a family that was not a theater family, but at our church, there was always a Christmas musical and I loved the Christmas. It wasn't even really a musical. Like I don't want to say bad things about the writers of those shows, but one year we were all bells and there was some story about, I don't even know what the story was. And I was like a bell and I usually had a little solo. And though I loved those shows, I loved the chance to sing in front of people and to sort of be part of a little story. So I, I think that's probably my very first experience. Then the two other, the two other things I usually mention are, um, I do have a dim memory of being taken to see The King and I when I was a child that was touring in our town. And I remember nothing about the show, but I remember seeing all the kids getting on the bus, you know, it was a bus and truck tour. And I remember seeing like, as we were going back to our car for the show, like all the kids, um, who were in the ensemble all getting loaded onto this bus and thinking, oh my gosh, what would it be like to be a, a kid touring the world in a show? <laughs> that made it clearly made an impression on me. And then um, the one that made a really big impression on me was The Sound of Music, which I saw at a friend's house. I actually grew up without a television. So the chance to sort of see, see a musical um, was really on, on a sort of on-screen musical was a really big deal. And I think I was about 11 and then I was obsessed from that point on with musicals, yeah. Nice. Um, which musical has had the greatest impact on you? I mean, in some ways, I do think Sound of Music had a big impact on me. I listened to that little cassette tape that I had over and over again. I wore it out, and um, and I, I'm trying to. But more recently, shows that I have been excited about. Well, I actually maybe dating back to sort of my growing up. The first show I saw on Broadway was Les Mis. That was a huge deal. A friend took me. She got to take a friend to see a show on Broadway every year. And so we drove up from Pennsylvania and that was like my big chance to see a Broadway show. I was 13. That made a big impact on me. I also wore out that album. And then uh, Into the Woods, kind of as a, like a sharp contrast to, to a Les Mis. Um, but I was so excited about like the volume of stories and the, and the pace of music that you could have. That really excited me. Um, and that's one that I go back to. Um, and I think uh, Passing Strange is another one that more recently that I go back to, I think is really, um, really smart and really well done. What is a musical people would be surprised to find out you love and why would they be surprised? It's interesting. It depends who who the people are. <laughs> like people, yeah. people who've known me for a long time probably be like, oh my gosh, Mossy loves all the musicals. People who may know me more recently now that my academic and scholarly work involves more um, like critique per se, but just more questioning around some of the traditions of musical theater writing might be surprised to know that I really do love um, the old, old shows like the Rodgers and Hammersteins and the Lerner and Lowe's. And I, I think that a lot of those shows are built like tanks. Yes, there's a lot of um, sexism, heterosexism, racism, <laughs> like misogyny. There's, I mean, it, there's a lot in those shows, but um, I, I really love a lot of the melodies. You know, I mean, Carousel, oh my God, what a, what a complicated 
show <laughs> from a gender politics stance and the, and the music is really beautiful as a composer I respond to that I really respond to Jerome Kern's music right going back to showboat there's a there's a complicated show if there ever was one obviously has had a huge impact on the form but just a hard one to get our minds around in this day and age um but I just uh I just do really love his, his sort of sweeping expansive melody so maybe that's something people might not know what is your favorite musical that no one else has heard of um you know one thing that I often talk about in my in my own classes when I'm teaching and whatever or just it's important it's and, and somebody mentioned it to me as, as something for me to think about which always stuck with me is that um it's really only it's really it's really only in the U.S. or I don't know it, it's it's how can I say this in a non-confusing way the fact that we think that a musical as something that combines music dance and drama is a unique art form is a kind of really um, Americentric or um, uh, kind of exceptionalist <laughs> in complicated ways idea because most places in the world, all performance includes singing, dance, and drama. And those are understood as part of a whole. And it's actually a really European mindset, as I'm sure you know, to sort of think about those things as being separate strands. Music as one thing, dance as one thing, drama as one thing, rather than thinking about them as a whole, as the way it is in a lot of Africanist cultures. So. I don't know. I mean, I've definitely been really impacted in seeing in seeing dramatic productions in other countries, um, even if those haven't necessarily been considered musicals. So I think that might be my answer. <laughs> the musicals that people don't think of as musicals, right? Because they may not fit this heading, but there's music and there's dance and there's drama all together, um, just outside of our particular kind of category. Great. No, that's a that's a great answer um what is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state you didn't think was possible to get to you know that moment late in fun home when allison finally starts singing with her father and the narrator becomes transformed by the telling of her story is a really beautiful um really really beautiful and complex moment that happens but as we're thinking about our own writing i'm sure you're working on a million things too it's something that i always keep in mind um the idea that a narrator always has to be transformed by the telling of their of their stories if there is going to be a narrator what is even if a few of us are you know we all may aspire to do it as elegantly as Janine Tessori and Lisa Crown, but i think um at least that's a really useful guidepost for me as a writer yeah, it's interesting. I I think I've heard Lisa uh, Crone talk about, because uh, I think this was her, with solo shows, like as uh, if it's just a person telling a story, it's more interesting if the telling of that story transforms like the, yeah. the person as they're telling it. Yeah. It's just like a static thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was fortunate to um, be mentored by Janine for a little bit, and uh, which I'm very grateful for. And, and that was one thing that she told me in a piece that I was working on. So I should, of course, give the credit, but just that in the telling of um, a story, the narrator should be transformed. So between her and Lisa Crone, they must have worked it out because right. clearly, <laughs> clearly it's, it's, uh, it's really beautifully done in that show. Yeah, no, I love that moment, too. Uh, great. Well, let's uh, move on to our topic. And we're going to talk about uh, Black women in musical theater history from the 1920s through the Golden Age. And oh my gosh, big category. <laughs> we were aspirational with this list. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, um, I guess we can start with just um, your your history with this topic and we can get then into the, the, the history of the topic. But if you want to yeah. start there. Sure, this is great. So it's interesting. I, um, as you know, I'm a writer and composer of musicals, and then I also have this other gig as an academic and a scholar of, of uh, musical theater. Actually, my scholarship is um, largely on vocal sound and sort of how we perceive and think about vocal sound and, and oftentimes um, how we think about racialized voices um, in musicals often. Basically, how I got into this topic is just kind of from my own practice and my own work in the field um i felt like and i actually recently interviewed a bunch of black broadway and off-broadway artists on this topic so there's an article in studies in musical theater for those who are interested or you could just message me and i'll send it 
to you um, called the Black Broadway Voice Calls and Responses. But just this idea that there's a perception right now um, in the industry about what Black people should sound like, and um, that oftentimes that perception can be somewhat limiting. So in sort of confronting that and trying to think about what that means for um, for performers, for writers, for artists working in musical theater today, in particular artists of color, Black artists. Um, I'm interested also in thinking about, well, you know, let's think about some of the evidence against these limited expectations, right? There, I think there are there's some beliefs that everybody came through a gospel background, everybody has a lot of riff um, potential and ability, which many people do, but also it can be sort of applied indiscriminately, right? Or, or there can be an expectation that someone will come in and just um, deliver a certain kind of sound that people expect. And I've seen it in audition rooms myself, in, in recording sessions <laughs> for musicals. So, uh, but if we look back into sort of the earlier eras of our, of our history, of our industry, of our art form, there are many, 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 many different kinds of voices, different colors of sound that Black women have had in musical theater. Um, so that's kind of part of what, what I'm interested in. My, my research kind of got started with the question of what kinds of voices seem possible for a Black woman on the musical stage. So if we look kind of right back to the turn of the 20th century um, and, and sort of think about the blues singers, whether Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith, I've been interested in thinking about how we might think about, for example, Bessie Smith as in the lineage um, of Broadway belting, right? We often sort of trace Broadway belting to singers like Ethel Merman and, uh, you know, and God bless her, like the woman had lungs for, you know, and, and a voice power for days. So, so not, not to take off any of her shine, but kind of often looking back that her sound is sometimes traced to Sophie Tucker another great lady, brilliant Jewish star um, of, of, the, of the early 20th century. Um, complicated legacy, right? Performed in blackface early in her career. It's quite a complicated legacy, um, but huge star, um, huge, um, uh, hugely talented comedian, right? Amazing comic timing. If we if we think back to to Sophie Tucker, what part of what I argue is that her sound draws on the blues women sounds, um, and 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 uh, Ethel Merman as well. Some of the other singers that she's been compared to actively studied with blues singers. Um, Sophie Tucker would have been hard. Uh, she did perform in blackface, right? In a certain moment. So obviously the sounds and presence of black women singers made it possible for a star like Sophie Tucker, who was not like a little petite vaudeville ingenue, right? She was like a full bodied woman with a powerful sound and, and sort of was able to be successful, I argue in part because of the, the figure of the, of the black wind blues singer and the sound um, that that created. So we can kind of see a way and, and there are actually really concrete stories in the archive about who studied with who. Sophie Tucker actually asked Ethel Waters, who was an amazing blues singer um, on the blues circuit before she went on to do more things on Broadway and Hollywood, known of course for Stormy Weather, the great torch song. Um, and Sophie Tucker asked Ethel Waters for voice lesson. So there are all kind of stories in the archive that you can find about how um, singing techniques were passed on, certain songs were passed on and um, influenced one another. And so I guess part of what I'm studying is just how we can hear um, Bessie Smith in the Broadway belt, regardless of who's on stage belting it. Great. And um, I guess like what, um, like, does this at that time does this manifest into stuff on uh, the musical theater stage on, on, in New York or, or across the yeah. country at that time? It's a great question. So I think you know um, some of the big shows that are studied like nineteen like nineteen twenty one shuffle along. Obviously, there were blues numbers in that show. Um, the the main singer in that show, Lottie G, was more classically trained. Um, played by Audra, that role was played by Andre McDonald in the reimagined 2016 version by George C. Wolfe, right? Um, so I, so there, so the blues were appearing, you know, on stages and on Broadway stages from an early moment. And also, also there's a, there's a period in this history where if you look at the sheet music, the Tin Pan Alley sheet music, um, oftentimes you'll see things uh, where you'll see the sheet music where songs are categorized in multiple ways. They're categorized as ragtime, as um, uh, as blues, as quote unquote, this is not a great word, but I'm going to say it, as quote unquote coon shouting, right? So the sheet music is going to categorize 
music in all of these different ways. So clearly there was a sense that they were overlapping and that they were dipping into each other. Um, my research studies less sort of how black women were, were singing on the musical theater stage in the 20s because I'm interested in thinking about the vaudeville stage and the black vaudeville stage as part of the musical theater stage in addition to what we think of just as a Broadway. Oftentimes what's talked about in the 20s is um, the sort of amazing innovations of black dance um, and, and Charleston and all these, of course, Florence Zigfield. I'm sorry, I'm giving a lecture. I'm going to stop soon. But Florence Zigfield, you know, got these black chorus dancers to come in and coach the dancers for the Zigfield Follies. And so that's oftentimes what's discussed with sort of how black people were dancing or were appearing on stage and innovating on stage um, in, the, in the 1920s. And also that there were all these amazing black men who were architecting musicals, right? So. And I, that's wonderful, but I'm less interested in like recuperating their history. <laughs> there are some great books that do that. I'm, I think my laptop is stacked on the book Black Musical Theater <laughs> by Ellen Wall. So there are definitely books that, that tackle that. Um, but to really think about how can I put the Black woman front and center, it was interesting for me to think about the vaudeville stage um, and these artists as vaudeville blues artists in order to really listen to how that sound makes its way um, into Broadway belting. Like, are there specific um, songs from that time that are like standouts that um, are like examples of of how of these, uh, you know, of the sound? Thing? Yeah, of the sound. Mm -hmm. There are a couple that I listen to um, that, I, that I think about in the book. One is a really great duet written by Ma Rainey. It's not a duet, but it was co-written by Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith called Don't Fish in My Sea which is such a, it's such a great lyric. The lyric is, um, you know, if you, I can't remember, sort of like to it, to a, it's a very empowering song for a woman to say, if you don't like my ocean, don't fish in my sea, stay out of my valley and let my mountain be. I mean, it's pretty much like, <laughs> if you don't, if you don't, you know, if you don't respect me, then stay out of it. You don't get this. It's kind of an amazing lyric co-written by these two women. If you don't like my ocean, To be honest, like anything you pull from Ma Rainey or Bessie Smith's oeuvre, I mean, Ma Rainey's Tessa Torres sits a little lower, so her sound is a little heftier, kind of closer to a Sophie Tucker. Um, Bessie Smith has a lot of, she's got power, but she kind of shouts up a little higher um, than Ma Rainey, you know, this is marginal. And then Ethel Waters, who I really love to study because she has a sound that um, a lot of people don't think of as um, typically blues sound. She kind of has a sweeter sound. She called it my low sweet um kind of singing i think that's what she called it <laughs> but uh she had a really really different texture of sound timbre of sound than a bessie smith but she was also very celebrated in her own right as a blues artist um sometimes people have said oh you know ethel waters she kind of tried to sound more white like this that and the other but she was hugely celebrated by black audiences so of course with vaudeville you have to remember that there were multiple circuits, right? So there were circuits that were touring specifically for black audiences and circuits where shows and acts were touring specifically for white audiences. So in the black circuit, the, the Toba circuit, um, these artists were singing for black audiences. So she was very celebrated among her own people um, as a blues artist, even though she had a really different kind of quality of sound and color of sound than, than a Bessie Smith. So her go to her standard song was St. Louis Woman. She um, wrote to the publishers of that song I think it's a WC Handy song. It's, it's actually a fascinating song. Speaking of songs that are categorized in multiple ways, because it kind of it has a tango sequence, right? So even though it's like one of the best known blues of all time, it, it incorporates this tango rhythm that was all the rage at the time of its writing. So I think it, this may have been in the late teens. I might have to check this. <laughs> 1918 is in my head. She became the first. She wrote to the publishers, which I think is pretty fabulous, and became the first. Um, woman one of the first acts and one of the first and, and the first woman who had rights to perform the song and it was her signature song um and uh so that's another fun one to listen to st louis nice. blues Got the same 
see My man's got a heart like a rock head in the sea Or else he wouldn't have gone so far from me But when you see me leaving pit creep on your door Won't be dangerous in coming back no more Got my railroad blues, railroad fare Feel like riding and I get nowhere Even get me a train 15 coaches long When you look for waters, I'll be gone The train I ride is my fantasy Can you back yonder to Tennessee To my dear old mama and dad Best advice I ever had So long, cause I'm on my way As we, I guess, move through history, um, kind of where does this lead to next? So then you get, what's really interesting when you get to the 40s, there's really some interesting, um, you start to get the torch singers, right? So starting in the 30s, you start to see black women referred to in the popular press as torch singers. Prior to that, the figure of the torch singer was um, really identified with um, a white woman, right? and specifically Fanny Bryce in singing My Man. I think this may have been, I, I wanna say it was early 1920s. I don't remember the exact year in the Ziegfeld Follies, which was a song that came from France. It was a French chanson that they had translated into English. And so they're, they're this sort of world weary woman who uh, holding a torch for her man. Torch song means different things now. We have all torch songs in all different genres, right from country to soul. Um, but sort of in its original form, it was that sort of Fanny Bryce in the spotlight, like the street lamp, right, sort of looking forlorn and singing about her man. And it wasn't until the 30s that we start to see black women um, described in the popular press as torch singers and at the waters as the quintessential one. So that's kind of gets us through the 30s into the 40s. You start to see a little bit of um, sort of just like confusion about what <laughs> what's allowed to be a black musical right so every there's this idea that sort of if it's going to be successful it should follow in the mold of like uh um Porgy and bass and um and showboat before I mentioned showboat and and sort of shows that didn't quite didn't quite follow that route like saint louis woman which i think um saint louis woman not the film, but uh, I want to say 1944, that might be wrong, 46, I think 46, <laughs> St. Louis Woman, um, were sort of criticized for kind of not like being, not sort of following that model of the like, quote unquote, Negro folk drama. And so there's this kind of tension between how do we, how do we think about how Black people are performing in more, um, in more contemporary ways for their time, more modern ways um, that maybe don't, that maybe resist the old forms and structures. But I, I do think about sort of the ways that black women were portrayed or expected to be portrayed. Um, and I think about Juanita Hall and Pearl Bailey, who were sort of, I think about them as these comic divas. So the way that they came to prominence in musical theater was not necessarily as the leading lady, um, but as sort of, um, and Pearl Bailey, really under-celebrated now, huge star in her own time, often best known for um, doing a big Hello Dolly revival just right, a few years after say. the original. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but was working in the 40s you know, and earlier right as well um, on Broadway. And uh, I think maybe her Broadway debut was, was uh, St. Louis Woman in, in 1946. Um, and Juanita Hall, who's fascinating because the original Bloody Mary in South Pacific, because she did this um, yellow face thing throughout her career, appearing as a Vietnamese woman, right? So Bloody Mary is, um, listed in the script of South Pacific to be from Tonkin province, even though she's kind of in this, the islands now, it's a, it's a province that's now in what is now known as Vietnam. So this Vietnamese character, right, Bloody Mary, played by a black woman. And then Juanita Hall, this black woman from, from New Jersey, also went on to um, play a character role in um, Flower Drum Song, right, with a, should be an all Asian American cast. There was a number of yellow face roles in that original production as well, but she went on to play um, uh, that role in the film as well. Um, so it's quite, quite. it's kind of, there. there's some things to celebrate and some things to critique about that. And I think that's part of why she isn't studied as much. It's hard to kind of 
wave a flag and, and celebrate her unreservedly because obviously, or maybe not obviously, but let me just say it, like we can't support Yellowface um, in, in this, uh, we, can't, we can't support that now. And it's, it's very hard to reclaim that. Um, at the same time, she had a really interesting career where she actually was trained as an operatic singer and then moved to the blues club. So at the time that she was performing in South Pacific, she was doing eight shows a week and then after every show or at least after multiple shows a week she was going down to a jazz club in the village and singing a full jazz set um of blues songs so like really interesting kind of like different textures of voice that she had to navigate and that had an effect on her sound over time so and then we get to sort of the more the better known the first, the leading ladies um the first black women to win tony awards for um for leading actress uh in, in a musical uh Diane Carroll and Leslie Uggins in the 60s. So then I talk a little bit about Black Women Ingenues and what the expectations are for, <laughs> for Black Women Ingenues, right? Some kind of a contradiction in terms in some ways, right? Because an ingenue is supposed to be kind of this fragile um, woman in need of protection. And that is not the way that Black women have often been characterized. Yeah, well, just a question on um, the those shows, like what, uh, you, you mentioned a few of them quickly, but what were some of those those shows um, that had these uh, characters in them for uh, these black women mm -hmm. on and um, sure. you know, how, you know, how were they kind of written uh, yeah. to, to support that, I guess, if that wasn't the, the dominant way we yeah well so for example diane carroll's um first big role um the late great diane carroll of course went into a huge career in, in film and tv and actually leslie uggins has been much more successful in film and tv it's one of the really eye-opening and kind of tragic things you start to see is that these black women who clearly had so much potential in musical theater um were not able to, to sustain careers there because the roles didn't exist and they kind of shook the dust of the theater from their feet and made their careers in film and TV. Um, both Diane Carroll and Leslie Abrams had their own TV shows, variety shows at different points in time. But um, 1950, I wanna say 55, I should have checked this, House of Flowers, um, the Harold Arlen Trimic Capote show was, um, had Diane Carroll as the lead as, um, I actually don't even know if I'm gonna say the character's name, right? But I think it's Otili, O-T-T-I-L-I-I. -I -I. It's set in this like Haitian, um bordello scene and actually pearl bailey and juanita hall were rival bordello madams in the show as well um it's really it's really striking so actually audra mcdonald sings some of these songs on her better known albums like a sleep in b um is from house of flowers right and so the fact that a young girl would have to conjure up all of the sweetness and hopefulness of a young wide-eyed innocent girl against the backdrop of a whorehouse like that's something that's never asked of a maria from the sound of music or even of what maria and west side story and so it's just the the it's it's a different it's a different situation when
to approach things more by thinking about well, how was that showing up in the vocal sound? Um, what are the practices that are in place around casting? What are the practices in place around um, musical theater writing conventions? What are some of the practices in place around what's expected of how a singer will sound and how she will vocalize um, and how she will be taught, right? So I think part of what I hear in the, in the sounds of Leslie Uggams and Diane Carroll is um, that they're belters, they, they both have kind of a sweet belt. And if you, and in different ways, of course, Leslie Uggams, one song you should look for, and you should look for the video because it is unbelievable, if you haven't seen it, of her singing Being Good from Hallelujah Baby, which was the show she won the Tony for. And it was originally supposed to be a Lena Horne vehicle. Um, and Lena Horne withdrew, and um, it was Leslie Uggams' breakout role. Um, and uh, I want to say, you can double check this, but I want to say a score by Julie Stein and um, book by Arthur Lawrence. So kind of the old school, this is kind of the old guard. That's why the so-called golden age, right? Until we get we start to get with hair uh, and then right in 1970 with melba moore and pearly we start to get a sound on broadway that comes more from pop music um, from black pop music um, in, a, in a really different way in a current way and people with melba moore's voice she also won a tony for pearly in 1970 it wasn't until that moment that you started to hear more with more regularity and more and more in more featured ways black women singers who sounded like people that you would hear on the radio per se of the time because of course that shifted in that whole decade so there's always kind of another angle <laughs> you know like once we we can kind of talk about how how the story is built but then if you kind of think about it like how the song where the songs are placed or how the songs are constructed then there's a whole different angle on sort of what it's doing and why mm -hmm. um, and the kinds of voices that are accepted and used i mean a really simple Example, actually, I have, maybe I shouldn't say the example because I haven't seen the new West Side Story, but I'm going to go see it <laughs> on, uh, on the later this week. But just the way that um, Anita and Maria are, have historically been cast and the contrast in those voices tell a lot about what is usually expected about um, how we will perceive and how we will ex um, understand those two characters, right? Anita with this kind of more low to the ground, earthy belt. And Maria, some of it is just the, the tessitura where the song is written, but this often more ethereal, floaty, and often more classically trained soprano sound. Um, it, those are those are characterization choices, right? The fact that that we expect them to sound in these different ways, and so you know, what is what does it mean? What does it mean that we expect people to sound in certain ways, and and more to the point that we think, oh, that sounds right. Mm -hmm. That sounds right for this. I find that really fascinating because it's a phrase that we use all the time. Uh, actually, the phrase that we use all the time as writers is that works. It works or doesn't work. Well, why does it work? And oftentimes the reason that it works or that it's perceived as working is because it's, is because it's recreating um, patterns that we have seen before. So it's familiar. And so it's easier to kind of accept and understand. Not always, but 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 often, um, and so it's really interesting as a writer to figure out how we kind of find our way through them. Yeah, no, that's such a great example. I'm starting to think now of other shows where you have two 
characters yeah. that interact, but that come with like very different yes. sound worlds and musical styles and yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really, and some of those things are just unspoken. They're taken for granted, you know, or, and, and what's really interesting is that then there start to be expectations around, around casting and sort of who, who was allowed to do those things, right? Who can have, um, I, you know, I went to a talk back of soft power. Um, I guess, I don't know when this was, what is time? Who knows what time is <laughs> 20, you know, at, <laughs> at the public. It must've been fall 2019. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was actually the, the understudy who was on that day for the lead, and I'm, I'm not going to say the character's name right, but I'll say it wrong to embarrass myself, but Shuang Shi, I'm not sure how you say it, right, the name of the character. Um, and uh, I can't remember the actor's name, but he was like, I never expected to be able to sing this kind of leading man, rolling baritone, lyrical role. I, I think the actor was Filipino. I, I'm blanking on the person's name right now, uh, Filipino-American, and just, you know, there are expectations that only certain kinds of people have certain kinds of voices. <laughs> it just, it, it creates all kinds of limitations and um, opportunities um, for, for us as writers. So, anyway, so, so looking to the past at sort of how we inherited some of those things, where the flexibility is, um, who kind of transgressed those things in her own way, Juanita Hall, saying across race in some really quirky ways, but also kind of created this, um, patterns for the way that Bloody Mary is often cast. It's often cast with a fair-skinned black woman now, you know what I mean? Which like, it didn't have to be. And not to say that that is like the gem of all roles for Asian American women, but um, you know, it's, it's an interesting part of her legacy. I would also say just really quickly, maybe as we're talking about golden age singers, that one other singer who I adore, who I think does not get her due, especially as we're talking about Asian American artists and I, and I, don't want to just talk about imitators of Asian American, like people who are singing in yellow face, but also like really amazing Asian American talents in musical theater is Pat Suzuki, who uh, was in one of the stars of Flower Drum Song. Her voice is unbelievable. Now, of course, the song that she's known best for is not like my favorite song in the world. I enjoy being a girl. But if you listen to some of the other things that she's recorded as well, her voice is unbelievable she but she had a big nightclub act she toured all over the country and i think all over the world as a nightclub singer and is still with us today um but it's just such a tragedy to me that the musical theater could not think of more ways to utilize her powerhouse sound like a powerful amazing clear authoritative belt there's some great videos of her singing on the um Oh, I forget what that show was that Frank Sinatra hosted. It might have just been called the Frank Sinatra show. <laughs> she just like owns it so much with this amazing, beautiful sound. Not the sort of um, stereotypically submissive uh, <laughs> role that so many Asian American female characters are, are asked to perform in. From this moment on, you is gone from thee yeah, and do, should we kind of move into we wanted to talk about mickey grant and carolina change and yes should we just talk a little bit about carolina change and then maybe we can do the mickey grant song yeah that'll work it's actually kind of interesting to go from talking about musical theater in the 60s the real 60s to talking about carolina change which i think is set in 1963 going from quote unquote golden age musical theater of the 1960s and singers like diane carroll and leslie uggams and pat suzuki to thinking about carolina change which is set in the 1960s but of course in the early 2000s um, and I did recently see the really wonderful revival you know I do remember that when I first saw Carolina Change it made a huge impression on me and I have to say it made a big impression on me seeing it again um, probably for some different reasons but one of the things that made um, a big impression on me originally was that um, of the new musicals that I was seeing and of the new musicals that I was seeing held up as exemplary of the form or innovative to the form, right? 
it's kind of like the way it is in a course line where it's like you get one of any given ethnicity you get one of a person of any given race right the actors in a chorus line know that and they're like actually they know that probably there's there's only a space for one morales or one connie wong you know either connie morales or, or connie wong and there is not is that the character's name i'm like failing in my knowledge of, of that, sounds, that sounds right <laughs> But anyway, so so similar to that, right? There's there's this like scarcity, and if you're gonna have a black woman in a show where there are white people, <laughs> and it's not an all black show, oftentimes that's that's you get one black woman, right? You get one, or maybe you get two, but to have three featured black women characters, Caroline, Dottie, and Emmy made a huge impression on me because they each had a distinct worldview that was that and those worldviews came into con conflict contrasted against one another um in some really and in really interesting and powerful ways and i had i could not recall having seen that in a musical i think part of what's so interesting about carolina change too is 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 what it's doing formally it really is uh musical playwriting you know and the way that Janine Tessori constructs these musical scenes so that you're you're slipping in and out of different grooves that respond very precisely to the dramatic beats of the scene is just uh, eye opening and and another one that is definitely worthy of of further study. Yeah, um, it's interesting you talk about the the three character the three black characters with the different worldviews. Do they have? Yeah. We were talking so much about different sounds. Do they? have um dis distinct sounds yeah and they definitely do well and i think and here's another casting thing so anika noni rose as the original emmy and samantha williams stunning talent uh as the emmy in the revival the other thing that's interesting so so she has uh she has kind of interesting that we were talking about ingenues right i think she's kind of an she's kind of like the um i, I think a little bit about leslie uggams as like a righteous ingenue in a way she kind of um there's I won't get into all of that, but I think there's ways that Emmy is also a righteous ingenue in her own way, right? She's she's an activist. Um, she's fighting for a better world. She's not accepting the status quo. Um, obviously, she loves her mom and appreciates everything that she's done for for the family, but she's not going to live her life the same way. Um, and so there's and also she's just younger in age, right? So there's a sweetness that comes through um, in the in the vocal texture. And in the vocal material that's given to her, in addition to like she gets I hate the bus, right, <laughs> which is which has a lot of power and gravitas to it, but also there are moments where it, it goes up higher and you sort of get this lighter. Um, lighter sound lighter in terms of heft and, and, and sort of weight of the sound if you could hold it in your hand is what I mean, and it also has to do with quite honestly. Um, how much of the mass of your vocal folds are bringing together. If you're bringing together a large mass of your vocal folds, you're gonna get a very powerful belt. If you're bringing together less, uh, mass is a little bit of a reductive word, but let's just say, if you're bringing together less mass of your vocal folds, then you're gonna get something closer to what people call a mix or of ultimately a head voice. Um, so, so she gets kind of a lighter, right? Thinner folds kind of sound as well. And if I'm lonely, doesn't matter. There's worse than being lonely. There's people who freeze while they wait on their knees and they don't know for what, and they just been forgotten. Ain't waiting no more. You just wait forever if you can't say what for. The other thing you hear between Dottie and um, and Caroline, this is super interesting. So there is actually a um, uh, one of the tracks on the album is titled, I think, Dottie and Caroline, which, I, you know, it it's a little bit like, are these songs? They're not really songs. They're, they're kind of like, I don't know, I'm old enough to remember <laughs> um, how when you got a DVD, the sort of like different cues in a DVD had titles, you know, and I often feel like that's how 
when you look at the score of a, of a show by Janine Tesori, because she doesn't always like to list the song titles in the playbill, but like the, the description is like, you know, it's just kind of to cue you. So you remember where you are. So do you want to click on that? <laughs> you know, right, right. but anyway, so it, it's not like it's a song called Dottie and Caroline, but that's, that's what, what it is, I think, on the album. Yeah. Um, but you hear that Dottie, well, of course, you, in the character development, you learn that Dottie does not go to church. And of course, Caroline is very religious. And so what happens in the way, the way their grooves shift is that sometimes, um, I can't remember which way it goes, if it's that Caroline will start will start singing, it's a groove, and then Dottie will shift it and it will sound like something on the radio. It's a very subtle shift also that the orchestration is supporting, um, may, or maybe it goes in the other direction, but that, um, and of course, you know, they're, they're in the history of pop music in this in this country, like that's a real shift that was happening, right? Like gospel sounds were coming into pop music, like we all know this with Aretha Franklin, even though I have tried to say that's not the only thing that was happening and there were many other sounds, um, but that is a huge part of our, of our history of, of pop music in this country. And you actually hear that in the course of the song, you hear the secular singer and you hear the religious singer and you hear them trading off um, vocally. Listen to them frogs expecting the moon. I don't hardly ever take the bus now. I got a boyfriend. He got a car. We never get to talk no more. Knees hurt, wore out, same as yesterday, same tomorrow. Too tired to talk. Well, how Noah do? Ain't my job to mind that boy. You want to know how Noah do? Ask him yourself. Caroline, why you huff at me? You never used to be that way. All of a sudden, so unfriendly. Ain't never done no harm to you. I don't like the way you do. You change. Gal, your age, wearing bobby socks and saddle shoes, acting like I don't know what all. Everyone down to the college, everyone wear these shoes. And I don't see that you got called to. You the one that changed, you changed. Last good flip hair, use no kid and runs with men's, never mind. Drinking too and smoking cigarettes. And I don't know what all. Uh, you getting pinched and pruning like them ladies at your church. Think they come at God's suggestion. Judging this one, judging that one. Boy, you got no self-divorce. Boy, I told you I was going to night school. Boy, I bet you what hateful. Now you got no grim and gospel. Sorry, you is sick and shame. I think maybe in terms of, in terms of the, quality of the sound, the color of the sound, because they're both doing kind of like um, gospel, right, inflected sounds in some ways, right? Both sort of more popular sounds that Dottie has, the more secular sounds that Dottie has, and um, and the Caroline music. Caroline, who's kind of weighed down with all of this grief, and this, the, she has, the things that she's carrying in life are heavy, and there's a heaviness to her sound, and there's kind of a brightness and a cheerfulness and it often goes with a just a actually brighter timbre um, that you get with Dottie's singing that you could that kind of I mean these are these are these are gradations of color, but I think that's something you can hear in the differences in their sounds. Nice. Yeah. Is that so is that the moment where um they're like waiting and they have yeah. the, the moon stuff, the moon change comes into? Is that yeah, they're waiting for the bus and Dottie, of course, like she just has a more like chipper outlook on life. I guess, she, you know, she's younger. She doesn't have all the, the responsibilities that Carolina has. She doesn't, to my knowledge, have all the children. I, maybe she does have some children, but it's not portrayed in the show. Um, she has a new boyfriend. She's going to night school right there. The future is one of possibility for her in a way that Caroline is, is dealing with a lot of loss, right? She had this abusive relationship. Her son is off fighting in Vietnam. She has this grim work life in the basement of this, you know, wealthy family's home. And, and she's, she has a lot to deal with. She, she does not have a cheerful outlook on life. So they're both waiting for the bus. And, um, and Dottie is trying to make conversation. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that um, song scene is is one of my favorites in the show. I, I love the music. And as you say, like the shifts there. Yeah. Um, as I wouldn't have been able to articulate it like that, but you definitely um, 
feel it as you're you're listening yeah to and there, it's very subtle i mean that's the thing like the the the, the sort of compositional and, and the dramaturgical choices that janine is making as a composer are very specific and very subtle and often very rapid cool so let's move on to our why is this so good section and i think okay. and um kind of along with talking about the song uh cleaning women Cleaning Women by Mickey Grant. Talk about Mickey Grant a little bit in general because you know she passed away uh, earlier this year. Yes, twenty one, and um, such a such a wonderful songwriter, musical theater writer, um, performer, mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. uh, you know her her show. I love um, you know Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, and mm -hmm. so many of the songs in there. So. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I really love the song Questions in yeah. that show. I think it's just such a wonderful, it's kind of got a Roberta Flack kind of a feel to it. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so yes, I do want to give respect to the late, great Mickey Grant, who I did not know about until late, you know, later. <laughs> I can't know if I could say I'm late in my career, but I, I, I wasn't taught about Mickey Grant. I didn't I didn't learn about her work. She had a hit Broadway show. I want to say 1978 was Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, which was the first uh, show on Broadway to be directed by a black woman, but first musical on Broadway to be directed by a black woman. It may even have been the first play. Um, Vinette Carroll, who was her wonderful collaborator and, and conceived the show. And she won a Grammy for this musical. It was a huge hit, it toured the country. It had a huge impact. And yet, again, because I think it has a little bit of a different structure. And I do think that oftentimes Kirsten Child, the wonderful Kirsten Child, so I also count as a mentor and friend, her work sometimes follow, falls more into this kind of episodic, um, something closer to a review or vignette um, than necessarily a, a book, a book, um, a book show. And I think there's just kind of a, a prejudice against those kinds of shows. I just feel like they're since the days <laughs> of the wonderful Rogers and Hammerstein, where they said they were elevating the form by integrating <laughs> the book and the music and the dance, right? There was this idea that that's the highest um, version of the form. And of course, it's been disputed this, this way, that way, and the other way. But I think that, that there's still kind of this feeling somehow that the book musical is the best. And I think, you know, Mickey Grant conceived of Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope as a review, as a review, but also as like a living newspaper kind of a function. She updated a number of the songs as the show was touring to make sure that it was relevant to current events. I mean, who does that? There's a whole slew of shows on Broadway that have now done another pass and tried to update themselves <laughs> to be less, you know, racially problematic. But this was something that she was um, from from a more proactive, right, as opposed to a reactive stance. She wanted to make sure that her show was relevant for the black audiences in particular that came to see it, that it spoke to people's lived reality. And so she updated it along along the along the way. I remember hearing her say um, she did a wonderful talk back with Kristen Childs after um, the city center production. I guess this was probably was this 2018, maybe summer 2018. That sounds I have no idea great. what time is. I think it was summer 2018. <laughs> um, and she, she said when they wanted to publish it, she said, well, what version do we publish? <laughs> because there had been so many different updates along the way. And so they kind of just went with what was being done at the time, I think. So that's Mickey Grant. Um, she um, also contributed songs to a number of other shows. I'm probably not going to get all of these Right, one of them is working, uh, which we are going to look at a song from today, just because I think it's a really wonderful counter and useful counterpoint to Carolina Change. Um, and the song is Clean and Women and um, sung by Lynn Thigpen in the original Broadway cast and uh, Patti LaBelle in the movie of Working. But this idea of the woman who was a domestic worker, Working came out, I wanna say in 1978, something like this. Um, working also kind of in this review of all these different people and their lived experiences. And, you know, I, I, I don't know all the history on the show. I feel like I have heard Stephen Schwartz say that he thought about writing 
I'm Mickey Grant kind of a song. And then he was like, I should just call Mickey Grant <laughs> to write that kind of a song. So if that is in fact true, you never know. I mean, I do want to give, I do want to give respect to, you know, people that open doors for black women, because if somebody hadn't invited her to contribute to this show, then we wouldn't have this really great song. And I, I just want to put that out there because I think it doesn't get said enough. And I personally am grateful for the people that opened doors for me. But um, so she wrote this great song about this woman who's working as a domestic worker and she does not want to be there. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, that feeling doesn't result in the same necessarily kind of heaviness that Caroline feels. But it is also important to remember that Caroline, which maybe I should have said before we wrapped up the Caroline or change stuff, but Caroline is a projection, in a way, of Noah Gelman's memories. He, she is a projection, as I recall, of Tony Kushner's lived experience and his memory, in some ways, obviously, the man is a brilliant playwright, but right, the, maybe the point of departure was how he remembered the maid in his own home. The point of entry into in sort of conjuring Caroline and imagining her in this world is really from the point of view of a Noah. And, uh, and so the the fact that she has such a heaviness about her it's a it's a complicated uh it's a complicated thing i'm not trying to get into authenticity debates but i think it's useful to see another version of a working woman who is working a very difficult physically demanding domestic labor job who is singing in an amazing deep groove right part of what's amazing about this song is that is the very very contagious um, groove that Mickey Grant has built for it. has hope for her daughter, right? And the whole point of arrival for the song is I've got a daughter with a head at her shoulder as pretty as a picture too. And she's not gonna live like this and she's gonna have a different life. And that is what I'm holding my head up for. And I think it's just a different story from the way Caroline is is positioned towards her daughter. In, in Caroline or Change, it is in a way it's Emmy that is leading the charge towards change. And Caroline is very reluctant. And in this song, it is kind of like the Caroline, the un-Caroline, I forget what the character's name is, right? But the singer of this song is, um, is the one who is actually anticipating the change for her daughter and the ending of this regime of cleaning and, and being docile and being ignored. Got a daughter with a head on the shoulder Without facing, 
I do, I do really love this lyric that says, cleaning women without faces, coming and going on a first name basis. I mean, it is su it's such a compact um, <laughs> way to um, explain the dehumanization of this work, that you're not allowed a last name. And I mean, we feel some of that, even though we might not, I might not have known to articulate it in Carol, to articulate how that's coming out in Carolina Change without this song. But the fact that it's Caroline, 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 or Caroline, her name is repeated so many times, whereas Rose Stopnick gets a full name. <laughs> now we know it's Caroline Thibodeau, but that full name is not usually a peer. It's not usually Ms. Thibodeau. I don't even think it's that anywhere in the show. And so the sort of access and the familiarity um, that people have or presume that they have um, or that the, the employing family presumes that they have to this Black woman is one that um, in Mickey Grant's song, we imagine a future where that's not the case. I mean, it's just Mickey Grant was such a great songwriter and it's like to have all that packed into all that packed into the lyric of this song, but you're also just dancing around. <laughs> around yeah, it. you just want, it feels, it it's a delight to listen to it, right? It's not like work. <laughs> right, right. And yet, and yet there's, there's still a turn working. at the end. Yeah. Exactly. As there, always, as there should be in a good musical theater song, there's a turn at the end. And it's not just the same thing that it was at the top. But yeah, yeah. She's also not afraid to, to hold, right? Mm -hmm. you, in the lyric, I'm not going to sing because it'll be messed. But you know, there was cleaning women. There's a break. There's space. Yeah. There's no rush. What's the rush? You know, right. there, song can breathe or can be percussive in the in the um movie patty the bells shaking out trash bags <laughs> on those yeah. on those two beats but you know like there's space for for the song to breathe a little bit it doesn't and that's actually part of the joy or the the felt groove of it you know mm -hmm. all right i think i've said enough i think i think <laughs> i've rambled enough great no i love that and i love talking about this song and mickey grant um should we move on to the last section? Something wonderful. Oh, yes. Something upcoming or current in musical theater, a musical or, or you know, books, events, you know, something that we're excited about, want to give a yeah. shout out to. Did really enjoy the Carolina Change revival, um, which unfortunately is closing soon. And I also recently saw um, Trouble in Mind, Alice Childress's play from 1955. So speaking about the work of, of Black women, theater artists and that is a play but a lot of the story turns on um the central character of this black woman and how she is expected to sing right in the rehearsal process for this 19 uh mid-1950s anti-lynching play right and some of the tensions that come about between the um mixed race cast and the white director and so a lot of it really has to do with <laughs> how she thinks she's expected to perform as a singer um and it's really kind of an amazing and time, it feels so timely. I mean, this is 60 some years ago. It feels so timely for everything that we're talking about in the, in the theater right now. So I would say it's a lovely production. LaShawn's, um, his stars and is wonderful. But also if you just haven't read the play, go read the play. Like it's a great, it's a great play. So that's Trouble in Mind. Uh, I'm very excited. It was just announced that A Strange Loop is coming to Broadway. So I'm just very excited. today that we're recording. Yeah, for Michael yeah. and the company and, and Rona, the music director, Rona Siddiqui. Um, it's really, and Barbara Whitman, the producer, who, you know, should get a lot of credit for championing things like Fun Home as well as A Strange Loop. Um, excited about that. I have a show that's scheduled to go to Broadway that I'm excited about, Paradise Square. I, I'm excited and I also, I'm in rewrites, <laughs> but but I'm excited. And the cast is wonderful for that. Um, and has really wonderful dance. So I think on, this, on the strength of the dance alone, which I had no part in, in my role as a co-lyricist, I really hope people will come see that. Um, and, and we have a really wonderful black woman, um, Jakina Kalakongo, who is starring and is a tour de force vocally and as an actor. So I'm excited about that. I have had a real joy um, through the American theater wing of mentoring um, both this year and last year, young women songwriters through their high school songwriting challenge. It's a um, program of the American Theater Wing and the NEA where high school students compete. And if they're selected, they uh, work with a mentor to revise their song and have it professionally recorded by Broadway artists. And that's been a real delight for me. 
Uh, last year I mentored a really talented Filipino-American uh, performer. She's, she's a performer and guitarist in addition to writer uh, Zaija Love, who's now off touring as a musician. And this year mentioned, uh, mentored, I mean, I didn't plan this and I have to remember, Oluchi, Oluchi's last name I want to say is Makori, and I may be saying it wrong, Oluchi, I'm sorry, but the wonderful songwriter um, Oluchi, Nigerian-American, um, and we are in the process of finishing the recording of her song. So that'll be out. They put them all up on Spotify, all of the high school songwriter songs. I really, that brings me a lot of joy because uh, I think the next generation of musical, I mean, I'm interested in the past, right? What was done before and what's possible for the future. Um, yeah, I'll just add my own uh, for things I'm ex want to yeah. give a shout out to. I just want to, since we were talking about Mickey Grant, just give more love to Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, which is uh, just listen to the whole album again today, which there you can't buy, but it's on YouTube. Somebody like uploaded the record <laughs> of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So definitely check out um, I when it was at uh, New York City. City Center. Mm -hmm. It was 2018, I think. And uh, when I heard that song, uh, So Little Time, you know how you just like, mm -hmm. sometimes you just hear a song in the moment and you're like, what is this song? Like, this is amazing. Like, yeah, where did this yeah. song come from? That's how I felt with that song, yeah. um, which is like my favorite on the album. But there's like every song is is a gem on that. Um, so definitely it's really sharp, really smart writing. And it, it's revived from time to time. Yeah, um, you know, so so here's hopefully, hopefully will be me more so. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast. Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow us on Instagram at scene to song on Twitter at Scene2Song, and on Facebook at scene to song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scene2song.substack.com. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode.